0: Thank you Barry, worship team, Ben. Good morning to you all. You would turn your Bible to Ephesians 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 to 6 this morning. Just one brief announcement. We are going to pick up our Sunday evening services starting actually on October the 25th. Uh, that first evening will be an ordination service for Adam Horbach. Uh, now those are very important services. And so, I would encourage you to be there to encourage him and his family. Uh, he's got some really great and glorious days ahead as a pastor, but there's going to be battles as well. And he needs his church family there to, to encourage him, uh, to communicate to him uh, what he means and his family means to you. So, we pick that up on October the 25th. And then, our plan is, the very next week, we'll pick up back in the prophet Jeremiah. So I'm looking forward to regathering with you on, on Sunday evenings and as we continue this process of getting back to normal. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Blessed, or maybe your translation reads praise. Both are appropriate there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray. Father, we join the Apostle Paul this morning and say, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in Your great mercy, You have given us new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us, grounded and secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Fathers, we see the Apostle Paul praise. This isn't just a painting for us to, to muse upon. It's a window through which we look and see what grace can do in a human being. We pray today, Lord, that this would be a means towards more fervent praise in your people this text, this message. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Joseph Stalin, as you well know, was the dictator of the Soviet Union from the mid-1920s until 1953. And his extremely brutal and wicked 30-year rule featured So many atrocities, including purges, expulsions, forced displacements, imprisonments in labor camps, torture, manufactured famines, and acts of mass murder and massacres, that the toll of the bloodshed is estimated somewhere between 6 to 9 million people, Nine million, you could say, non-combatant deaths. That was about the population of New York City. Robert Conquest, in his biography on Stalin, notes that by the late 30s, the 1930s, he had reached the zenith of his power. And one day, there was this meeting where at the mention of his name, the entire crowd stood and gave him a standing applause, standing ovation. The tricky part was, who was going to end this standing ovation? Eventually, one older man, one older gentleman got so fatigued, he just kind of plopped down on his seat. Naturally, his name was noted, and he was arrested the next day. For being the first one to end the standing applause for Lenin. Now here's the point. Or rather Stalin. Stalin could coerce external praise but not internal and enduring praise and love and exaltation. There's only one that can do that, and that is the Lord who has blessed his people, as we saw last week, in Jesus Christ. And Paul recognizes that. As he begins, and this is the very beginning of the body of his letter to the Ephesians, he can't even contemplate the truths of verses 1 and 2, where he says that he is an apostle, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, a a former murderer and terrorist towards Christians who has now been appointed by grace to be an apostle. He can't even contemplate the truth that we as believers are saints, holy ones, set apart in Jesus Christ, deemed faithful in Christ. He can't even contemplate the truth that grace and peace comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord, without breaking out in praise. That's where we begin here in verse 3. In fact, this praise in verse 3 begins what ends up being the longest known Greek sentence that anyone is aware of. Verses 3 to 14 is actually one sentence in Greek. Two hundred and two words. He is so caught up in praise, he doesn't even pause to place a period. And where we begin here at the very beginning of this passage is the who of our praise. The who of our blessing. Notice with me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's praising, he's blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first person of the Trinity, the first person of the Godhead who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want you to notice the emphasis here on blessing. In fact, it's the same root for all the times he uses this word. Notice, he says, blessed be who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And so we, we saw last week that grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, the Apostle Paul blesses and praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is the subject of almost every main verb in verses 3 to 14. Just a, an overview, and this is going to take us into the next couple of weeks. Notice, He who has blessed us, verse 3. He who chose us, verse 4. He who predestined us, verse 5. He who has blessed us in the Beloved, verse 6. He who has lavished His grace upon us, verse 8. He who has made known to us His will and His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ. To unite all things, verses 9 and 10. And furthermore, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 11. The Father is the subject of all of those verbs. Of course, all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in all aspects of salvation. Salvation. There's an, let me give you a fancy term, there's an inseparable operation in the Godhead. Jesus himself said, I only do what I see the Father doing. There is an inseparable operation. And so you could say that the Father is the architect of these blessings. The Son is the agent. He's the one who comes and secures these salvific blessings. And, and the Spirit is the administrator. We need a triune God in order to be saved. And we have one. So the Spirit applies what Christ has achieved. And that brings us to the where of our blessing. We've seen the who. But notice here in verse 3 again, the where. He says, he has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing, these are propositional phrases. think back to your English days in, in school, grade school. There are three propositional phrases here in verse three. "In Christ, with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places." So these are the blessings. He's clarifying the blessings that comes from our God. Notice, first of all, God has blessed us in Christ. We talked about this last week. This phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved, that's going to be found nine times in the ESV translation from verses 3 to 23. Eleven times in the original language, Greek. That is, these blessings are promised only to those who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus. These blessings are only for those who recognize their sin, repent of their sin, and trust in Jesus alone, what he has done for sinners. By living the life we could not live, dying the death that we deserve, and being raised from the grave for our pardon. And by faith, we are united to Him. Notice the second phrase here. He limits these blessings in the here and now to spiritual blessings. Now, what, is, what does He mean by that? Again, verse 3. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It means two things. The blessings come from and by the Holy Spirit so again the father plans this the Son achieves salvation for us and then the Spirit is the one who applies these blessings to us it also means that these are spiritual blessings rather than material blessings now we have material blessings coming in uh, in a manner that we could never conceive in in the in the day of resurrection we have the promise Of grand and glorious material blessings but that's not what Paul is referring to here what he's saying here is that everything we've we have received through God's salvation in Jesus Christ and applied by his spirit is comprehensively summed up in this phrase every spiritual blessing now this is in contrast with the old covenant in the Old Testament days, when God promised material and physical blessings um, to the faithful Israelites. You can see case in point there in Deuteronomy 28, 1-14, where he promises faithful Israelites, many children, a good harvest, an abundance of livestock. Now, it's not that God doesn't give us and grant us material blessings today. He does. Uh, Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says, My God shall supply all your needs, physical, material needs, according to his riches in glory in, in Christ Jesus. But temporal provisions, as important as they are, are relatively unimportant with compared against these Spiritual blessings. This week, the great guitarist, Eddie Van Halen, died. And and, and Van Halen uh, had many material blessings. God gave him many talents, and and, and he he lived a life of, of great prosperity as a result. But the moment he died, those material blessings became eternally irrelevant. The only thing that matters today, and I don't know, I didn't know Eddie Van Halen. The only thing that matters for all eternity is whether he was in Christ. The only thing that matters. And Paul recognizes that. That's why he is promising us that these spiritual blessings are ours. In this life, we may have more or less material blessings. But notice, we have every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. That word every is the key word here. None are withheld to any believer. We're all equal heirs to these spiritual blessings. Each one of us have different gifts. Each one of us have different opportunities in this life. Each one of us has different circumstances. For sure. But we all possess every spiritual blessing. In fact, that's so remarkable that Paul's going to have to pray later on in this chapter that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order for us to understand that better. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But the third propositional phrase in Ephesians 1-3 is that he has blessed us in the heavenly places. Literally the heavenlies. He has blessed us in the heavenlies. This phrase, and we're going to see this, is found five times in Ephesians. It's very important in in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So because our blessings are in Jesus Christ, these blessings are also in the heavenlies because that's where Jesus is. When Jesus was raised from the grave, He then ascended to the Father, where he sits at the right hand of the Father in session as king. That's the heavenlies. And Paul's going to tell us later in chapter 2 that we've been raised up with Christ. And so, Jesus rules at the right hand, and he mediates the blessings of the Father to us by the Spirit. Indeed, we have a glorious triune God. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to experience trials. We're not health, wealth, or prosperity here because the Apostle Paul wasn't. We live in a broken and fallen world and we are broken and fallen people. But through it all, the first fruits of our inheritance, the first fruits of heaven are always present with us and cannot be taken away even if what happens in November at the election goes against our wishes and prayers it's important for us and that's why Paul would say in Colossians 3 if then you've been raised with Christ set your mind on things above not on things of the earth for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The unsaved person is primarily interested in earthlies. If that's a term, Paul's using the language of heavenlies. How about earthlies? Because that's where he lives. That's where she lives. That's where her hopes, his hopes and affections reside. Jesus described the unbeliever. In Luke chapter 16, as sons of this world, John, the revelator, in his book, The Revelation, the last book of the Bible, he uses the language of earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth 11 times. Of course, all of us dwell on the earth, but as Christians, that's not where our position is. That's not where our hopes are. In John, the book of Revelation, earth dwellers are those whose hopes are in the here and now, in the material and the physical world. But our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. Physically, we're on the earth in a human body. Paul's writing to those who are in Ephesus. He's writing to those who are in Fisherville, to those who are in Louisville. But spiritually, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. And it's that sphere that provides the resources and the power for our walk in Louisville, for our walk in our earthly pilgrimage. Let me use this analogy think of the President of the United States. The President isn't always seated at his desk in the White House, but that executive chair represents his sphere of authority. And so he may end up uh, at Walter Reed Hospital, just speaking hypothetically. He may end up there with some kind of virus. But he still has the authority, even in his difficult condition with COVID, with the virus He still has the privilege of the one who sits at that desk in the White House. Likewise, for every believer, no matter where your location is on earth, no matter what your situation is, no matter who is the president, no matter who is the governor, no matter who is the mayor, no matter how things are going in your world, you are seated in the heavenlies In Christ. And you have all things, Peter would say, pertaining to life and godliness in him. Isn't that glorious? These are the spiritual blessings that we have. Now, he's going to get more specific. And so we've seen the where, we've seen the who. Now in verses 4 to 5, we see more specifically the what of our blessings. At least the beginning of that. Notice in verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, verse 3 kind of serves as an overture. If you've ever been to an orchestra uh, event or a play, sometimes the orchestra will play what is known as an orchestra. An overture it just kind of whets your appetite for what's coming. So they just kind of give you a, a coming events kind of thing, all right, through that, uh, that time. That's verse 3. He's given us the overture. Now he's going to get more specifically. And starting in verse 4, he's going to give us four key verbs that form the basis of his praise In other words, the what of our blessings. The first verb, He chose us. Verse 4. In verse 7, we have redemption. We'll see that next week. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 13, you were sealed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. But He begins with the word that can also be translated election. He elected us. Now this is a theme throughout scripture. We see it even in Genesis 12 where God chooses this moon worshiper out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Abraham. We see it in Deuteronomy 7 when God chooses Israel to be his nation. And and here's the reason he gives, because I loved you. I chose you because I loved you. And so let's first of all begin with a definition of election. The Baptist faith and message. This is what Southern Baptists have historically believed. Election is God's eternal choice calling persons unto everlasting life not because of foreseen merit in them, there is none, but because of his mercy in Christ, in consequence, of which, they, which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. Now I want to camp here for a few minutes. Clearly, this is a doctrine that has provoked division in Christ's church for throughout church history. And I submit to you it shouldn't. And so I want to give you some points before we get into this more. I want to give you some points that every Bible-believing Christian should find agreement on concerning this doctrine. Which is going to drive home my prayer is that no matter your understanding of this doctrine, and, and broadly speaking, there are those who believe that it's unconditional, and those who believe it's conditional. Where God looks through the tunnel of time and sees those who will choose him. Those are the two broad understandings. But I want to give you some points here that I think should be a matter of agreement with us all before I give you what I believe to be what Paul is saying. And the reason for this is I want us to see that we have more in common than we don't. We have more in common with each other then we don't this should not be a divisive issue first of all we know it's a biblical term I've had people tell me I don't believe in election well the problem is it's a biblical term it's it's found numerous times in both the noun form and the verb form in the Bible including the New Testament in other words election is a divine revelation, not human speculation, invented by theologians. It's a divine revelation, not human speculation, invented by theologians. Second, because it's a biblical term, faithfulness requires that we deal with it, even though it's unnecessarily controversial. In fact, it should be more controversial if we ignore it. That should be the great scandal in Christ's church. That doctrines and texts are ignored out of fear of what will happen if they're taught. That's the great scandal. Third, all of us and I believe all of us do, should agree that it's God who saves. Salvation is all of grace. Didn't Jonah tell us that? Salvation is of the Lord. And that's why we pray the way we do. None of you get on your knees and, and as you're praying for a, a lost loved one, you don't pray, God, would you influence them? You pray, God, would you save them? You are confessing salvation is of the Lord. Fourth, we agree that not everyone will be saved. This isn't universalism. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? There will be many who say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Fifth, we all agree that Romans 1013 is true. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We all agree. Again, what are we talking here? The things that all of us agree on. The things we agree on Are far greater than the things we may not agree on. Sixth, we aren't the ones who elect. It's God who elects. This is not a democracy we're talking about. God is the one who elects. In November, we're the ones who elect. But in the economy of God and salvation, it's God who elects. He's the subject of the verb. Seventh, we all agree that Romans 10.14 is true. And what is Romans 10.14? How are they to believe in him without someone preaching? That reminds us that we have to take the gospel to the nations. No one is saved without hearing the gospel. All of us agree with that. By the way, that's why we emphasize Lottie Moon here. We're getting into Lottie Moon season. It's vital that the gospel go to the nations. Eighth, election does not undermine human responsibility. The moment someone diminishes the role of human responsibility, that person's doctrine is out of balance. In fact, There are 40, exactly 40, imperatives in Ephesians. What's an imperative? It's a command. What does that tell us? We are responsible agents. We're not puppets. We're not robots. We are expected to respond to the apostolic word of God. Forty commands... The term I like to use is compatibilism. Again, think about a a husband and wife. When they are planning to get married, they perceive themselves as compatible with one another. They're not exactly the same. There's remarkable distinctions and differences between a husband and a wife, right? There's only two genders, right? And, and, And so there's great difference, and yet there's compatibility. And that's why they get married. Divine sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility. Spurgeon said that these two truths don't need reconciling because friends never need reconciling. Ninth, Scripture nowhere dispels or lays out the mystery of election. Nowhere. It's unlikely we're going to discover some simple solution to a mystery which has baffled the greatest minds in 2,000 years of Christendom. There, in fact, there are mysteries in whatever system you embrace. If you're trying to embrace a mystery or a system in order to overcome mystery, you will never embrace a system. But if we're going to encounter mysteries, it's a good practice to do so by embracing what is plainly taught. Eleventh, election is a reason to praise God. Right here in the text, praise be Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places every spiritual blessing in Christ, even as he chose us in him. You see, the first reason to praise Paul gives is election. So if this is a, a reason to praise, we can't get up in arms over this even if we don't understand everything. Eleventh, it's an encouragement to evangelize. Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.10 says, and he's writing from the maritime prison where he's been brutalized. He'll be killed in this maritime prison. He'll be beheaded, tradition tells us, around 64 AD. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, which I am suffering to the point of change, but God's word is not changed. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. So Paul recognizes there's an elect. And he says he's willing to endure all things for the sake of the elect. It's like fishing in a stocked pond. When you go fishing in a stocked pond, you will see fruit from your labor. Number... Twelve, election does not diminish the need, indeed the necessity of prayer. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 verse 13. Listen to this, God chose you. You could translate that, elected you. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And then just a few verses later, to the same people that he said God chose, he says, brothers, pray for us. See, our minds would think, well, if he chose you, then what's the need for prayer? Paul Paul says, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Paul recognizes that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. And he never takes the, the time to explain the mystery. Number 13. The doctrine of election requires that we affirm God's divine divine sovereignty at some point in the equation. And so again, going back to those two broad positions, there are those who hold to unconditional election. God elected in eternity past. There are those who hold to conditional election. That God elects conditioned upon what He sees will happen in the future through the tunnel of time as those repent and believe and then He elects upon that. So you you have to affirm divine sovereignty in either equation at some point on the spectrum. For those who hold to unconditional election, the divine sovereignty is seen in eternity past. For those who hold to conditional election, it's seen at the moment of conception. Because all of us believe two things. That it's God who brings conception. that, That every life, that's why we are pro-life from womb to tomb and that's why it's wicked to vote for someone who isn't that's another sermon Um, but God is the one who brings conception in the womb he also has foreknowledge, all of us recognize that none of us are open theists, open theists are those who believe that God doesn't know the future the future is just open That's a heresy. And so when God brings conception in the womb, he knows who's going to choose him and who isn't. And so he unilaterally brings conception to those he knows won't choose him. So you have to affirm divine sovereignty at some point in the equation. You can't get away from it. It's impossible to get away from it unless you're an open theist. And it's not worth that. Number 14, you can be sure you're elect. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, brothers, make your calling and election sure. You can be sure that you elect. Well, what's the assurance? It's, it's, it's grounded by the gospel. If you are trusting in Jesus alone, you've repented of your sins and, and you are trusting in Jesus alone. And as evidence that you've been united to Christ, there is Fruit being produced in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and repentance. You can be sure that you're elect. Or Peter wouldn't say that. Fifteen. And this is part of us remember there have been godly people on both sides who've disagreed on what election means. There are godly people who believe in unconditional election. There are godly people who believe in unconditional election. Christians on both sides. There are world-class scholars who disagree on this. You can be a great theologian and disagree on this doctrine. Let me give you an example as far as godly people, George Whitfield and John Wesley. They were best friends. They disagreed on the doctrine of election, it did not divide them. In fact, uh, Whitfield was asked when Wesley died whether he thought he would see Wesley in heaven. He said no. I'm not going to see Wesley in heaven because he's going to be so close to the throne and I'm going to be so far away that I won't be able to see him. I hope we have that maturity. Sixteen. I was going to give you a few. I didn't tell you how many. I thought it would break your spirit. (laughs) But listen. Here's how election is generally treated. Here's what it means and here's why you're wrong. And, and, and I just, there's nothing pastorally wise about that. So, 16, we're going to be out here on time, I promise. Every spiritual blessing is connected to election. Let the text inform you here. Praise be, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he chose us in him. So whatever your understanding of election, it's connected to every spiritual blessing. In other words, it's not some optional garnish on the main dish. 17. God's election has an end goal. We see it in the text here. We see the end goal that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's a gift, and that's a task. This is all of grace. So we have something removed, and we have something supplied. All right? What do we have removed? That we should be blameless. In Christ, we have our blame removed. Is that a blessing? Have you done things, thought things, said things that are worthy of blame? Probably this morning. In Christ you have your blame and the shame from that blame removed comprehensively and permanently. That we should be blameless. And then, you know, we're not going to get through life blame free and shame free. We're just not. We're in a broken world and we're broken people. But the gospel is that God in Christ has erased the blame. Our blame was imputed to Christ and he took the blame in our place on the cross. And we know that that blame has been resolved because God raised him from the grave. And so he takes away the blame, but notice he supplies us something as well. That we should be holy in his sight. We are in Christ holy, definitively sanctified. When God sees us, he sees us as holy so that we can come into the temple, so that we ourselves can be temples by which his spirit dwells. Now, that's also a responsibility. We're going to get to that in a moment. It's a gift, but it's also a responsibility. No one can hide under election and live lives that are unrepentant and cavalier Dismissing transforming grace. The evidence that we are in Christ is that now what we are in position, blameless and holy, begins to be worked out in our lives where we grow to be blameless and grow to be holy. 18. There will be no victims in the day of judgment, there's no injustice with God you can't figure this out, just rest. The judge of the earth will do right. Genesis 18. Nine, Psalm 96. He will judge the world in righteousness. I don't have to worry about God getting one person wrong. Only culprits in judgment. No victims. 19. Election does not exclude and does not condemn anyone rather it works as exclusively as a benefit to a world that's naturally opposed you say the world is naturally opposed Ephesians chapter 2 tells us in our natural state we are children of wrath dead in our trespasses and sins following the ways of the world and of the ruler the kingdom of the air final point if our understanding of election is right if it's correct then it will provoke the same question that Paul hypothetically raised in Romans 9 where he speaks about this even more than he does here In Romans 9, in the the context that I'm speaking, he speaks about God's purpose of election. That's Romans 9, verse 11. You can look at it this afternoon. But then he raises a hypothetical question. A question that you've probably raised this morning. A question that I've raised. This is the natural question. Hypothetical. Very pastoral of Paul to do this. In Romans 9, 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because when we think about election, that's our first and natural response. Because again, our minds are finite and fallen on top of that. And here's his answer. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so it depends, get this, not on human will. It depends not on human will. Or exertion on the part of a human. But on God who has mercy. Now I didn't write that. And I didn't break into your house last night and cut that and paste that in your Bible. It's been in the Bible for 2,000 years. But to say that God is unjust is to say that He does not treat people justly. But we need to make sure that we have a biblical understanding of justice. We've got this term justice. I mean, it's just being bantered around today. And, and, And much of what we hear is essentially justice is equality of outcomes. Which is exactly what Karl Marx taught. That's not biblical justice. Biblical justice does not mean, it does not consist in treating everyone equally. It consists in giving everyone what they deserve. That's what biblical justice is. And so having said that, I believe that Paul's understanding of election is that it's unconditional. There's nothing in me that would have commended him to save me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. The word dead in Greek means dead. I was following the ways of the world and he interrupted my sin-stained life by his sovereign grace. And I believe that's also confirmed by the next verb he uses in verse 5. Notice in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, whereas election refers to people, predestination refers to purposes. Let me show you another place where this very verb predestination is used. We don't like this word sometimes because we're thinking, you know, what, what a, we're thinking with regard to our human sensibilities. Well, that just doesn't, that's, that doesn't seem right. But again, we have to let the scripture sanctify our thinking. That very verb is used in Acts 4 to refer to the cross. Here's what Luke wrote in Acts 4. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples, peoples of Israel. So he's got four culprits. They will be held accountable. They're responsible agents for nailing Jesus to the cross. But get this to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place can we solve that ministry mystery absolutely not and Luke is not burdened to explain it to us which means it shouldn't be our burden but there are four culprits here four parties involved in the nailing of Jesus and they are held accountable they're truly responsible for their sins and yet it says To do what your plan had predestined to take place. Same verb that we see in Ephesians 1. And so if I neuter predestination. If I soften that verb to fit my sense of things. I make the cross an unfortunate accident in history. And the cross is the plan of the ages. Even though I can't fully understand and comprehend the mystery and the relationship. And I am fine with that. I came to terms with that a long time ago. So here, he has predestined, which means to previously ordain us as adoptionist sons. Now, sorry, ladies, in this text, you are considered sons. Now, What does that mean? Well, the sons, the firstborn son, was the heir. All right? The daughters weren't the heir. The sons were the heir. But in Jesus Christ, the heir, the son of God, we have all the rights and the privileges of sonship. So if it bothers you that you are deemed a son, it should bother me that I'm considered the bride of Christ. (laughs) These are just metaphors that speak about... High and glorious doctrine. Think about this. Chapter 2 verse 2 says we're sons of disobedience. We had another family. And then we were children of wrath. And now we are heirs. Adopted heirs by God's grace. We went down three and a half years ago to Slidell, Louisiana. And we took Siphon. And his last name was Thomas. And now, Stephen is an heir, and he's a pain. Sometimes you speak greater than you know. And that brings us to the why of our blessing as we close. This is what it comes down to. Verse 6. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who's the beloved? The beloved Son. This is the son in whom I'm well pleased. Luke chapter three, "We have been blessed in the beloved." Now this phrase glo- uh, to the praise of his glorious name is going to be sound. It's going to be seen three times. We see it here in verse six. Notice in verse 12 to the praise of his glory verse 14 to the praise of his glory interestingly and gloriously each of these phrases references a different person of the trinity here it references the father in verse 12 it references the son and in verse 14 it references the Holy Spirit now if God was Allah of Islam he is one and there's no plurality in him this would be conceit that he would do something for the praise of his glory that would be outright conceit and arrogance and pride it would be like a dictator but in the Godhead there is infinite love shown from each person to of the other two persons in the godhead and that love and that grace overflows to our benefit so that whatever glorifies his grace benefits his people amen and because of god's grace in jesus christ we are accepted in the beloved There's nothing you can do to lose that favor as a Christian. Now, that doesn't lead to license. You'll be under his discipline. He loves you too much to allow you to remain in your sin. But there's nothing you can do. There's nothing my kids can do that diminishes my love for them and my favor on them. And for that reason, this morning, we have reason to praise. What better application of a text than praise? He is no cosmic linen. He's a savior for the apparent unsavable. He's a savior for those who look at face value to be unsavable. I would venture to say that most of you, many of you in this room... The day before you were converted, a lot of Christians would have said, there's no way that person could ever get saved. He's a savior for the unsavable. What else explains our presence here? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to you in the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can come to you in the beloved because of the omnipotent work of the Spirit. Indeed, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning. And Father, we thank you for the blessings. We say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning for the many spiritual blessings, the innumerable, every spiritual blessing that we have in Him. We pray, Lord, that this passage would provoke and expand the capacity for every believer here to praise. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never praised you because they're not in Christ, I pray today you would work, that you would save. I pray that you would direct their affections, their thoughts, their minds, and their wills to the finished work of Jesus. That they might be holy and blameless in your sight. We ask these things in the name of our Christ. Amen.